Let's open our Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 6. Our text is verses 1 through 19. We're going to look at the destruction of Jericho in two weeks. Over a period of two weeks. Believe me, it will fall. It's not going to fall this morning, but it will fall. Our topic there is that the Israelites march around Jericho's walls while its inhabitants huddle in fear. The title of our message, Against Wall Odds. It was either that or the walls have fears. Fears. Yeah, there's an old saying, the walls have ears. Or I was going to do the holy in the wall gang from... I got a million of them. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. I wouldn't do it except I know this is the, the real part of the service that ministers to you is the title of the message. I, I mean, you know, I, I said, Lord, please don't make me do another title. And, and the Lord says, the people love it, Gene. So in chapter 6, verse 1, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. 
it and who all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us as we uh, look at this really well-known story, this famous story. I pray this morning that it would be our desire, Lord, to learn from it those uh, insights that are most needful for where we're at right now in our own walk and the Jerichos that we face, uh, the walls, Lord, that seem so impregnable and impossible so that we would have an understanding of how you are going to knock them down before us and give us victory. Victory that you've won for us already on the cross in Jesus Christ. Victory that is promised to us, Lord, as children of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Simulators are the ultimate video games. Years ago, one of the brothers here at the church was in charge of the flight simulators at Lemoore Naval Air Station. He took me out there and let me attempt carrier landings. I crashed every time. Fresno PD has a video simulator that puts you on the streets as a police officer in a shoot, no shoot situation. Last time I was there for some chaplain training, they tested us on it. I got shot or stabbed and was killed every time. Whether it's a $50 million fighter jet or a $500 Beretta, my weapons proficiency in a combat situation needs improvement. The Israelites demonstrated weapons proficiency at Jericho. The stronghold fell to them. The only obvious weapon they had was a short sword insufficient against a fortified city. You therefore realize that their weapons were spiritual and thus mighty to the pulling down of enemy strongholds. The weapons they fought with are the same weapons available to you and I in our spiritual warfare. They are sufficient to the pulling down of strongholds when we demonstrate our proficiency with them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, strongholds fall when you become convinced of your weapons sufficiency. And number two, strongholds fall when you demonstrate your weapons proficiency. First of all, in verses one through nine, let's talk about the sufficiency of our weapons. Bible commentator Leon Wood describes ancient Jericho and he says, the walls were of a type that made direct assault practically impossible. An approaching enemy first encountered a stone abutment, 11 feet high, back and up from which sloped a 35 degree plastered line of jagged cliffs, reaching to the main wall some 35 feet vertical above. The steep, smooth slope prohibited battering the wall by any effective device or building fires to break it. An army trying to storm the wall found difficulty in climbing the slope and ladders to scale it could find no satisfactory footing. Archaeologists also described the fortification of two walls that surrounded the nine-acre city. The outer wall was six feet thick and the inner wall was 12 feet thick and they were 15 feet apart. Furthermore, the city was built on a mound making approach to it even more difficult. The task was physically impossible to Joshua and the Israelites, and so it's a good thing their weapons were spiritual and not physical. Jericho can stand for many types of enemy strongholds in your life. 
It may be some seemingly impossible enemy within some drive or desire you struggled against all your Christian walk. It may be some seemingly impossible outward situation at home or at work or somewhere else. Whatever it is, it can be taken. Your spiritual weapons are sufficient to pull down its walls. Now, the opening nine verses summarize God's strategy. Uh, Probably a representative group of the armed men were to march around Jericho once a day for six days, followed by seven priests, each blowing a trumpet. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant would come next. The rear guard would complete the procession. The only noise permitted was the sound of the trumpets. On the seventh day, the procession would march around the city seven times. The priest would give a long blast on the trumpets, and then the marchers would all shout. God would then cause the walls to fall down flat so that the city could easily be taken. Looking down upon the Israelites from the walls, their enemies saw a congregation of believers with God's presence in their midst, marching in a specific order and each having a specific function. You should be able to see the same thing as you look down upon a local church. We are God's congregation of believers on the earth today. We don't have the ark. We have the fulfillment of the ark in that Jesus promised to be present when we gather and he promised to walk in our midst. The ark of the covenant represented the physical presence of God in the midst of his people in the Old Testament. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple that separated men from the Holy of Holies, where that ark rested, was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that access to God was open to all who would receive Christ as their Savior, that there was no veil between God and man, and that Jesus was spiritually present with us at all times. And then a couple of my favorite promises in all the word of God, Jesus said to us, when two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. And certainly that applies to any gathering of believers. But when he says in my name, it has a special significance to meetings of believers, meetings of the church. And then a beautiful picture in the revelation of Jesus Christ there in chapter One, he describes the churches on earth as a candlestick and says, I walk in the midst of that candlestick. I walk in the midst of the church. And so there should be a sense every time you meet together with Christians, especially a meeting of the church, Jesus Christ is not just present because we're there and he's omnipresent and he lives within us by the Holy Spirit, but he has promised to be there in a special way to manifest himself to each and every one of us to resolve issues in our lives, to change us, to uh, encourage us, to strengthen us. Whatever it is that we need, the Lord is there with us. He is in our midst. And then in the church... We are to find our specific gifts, and then we are to march together as one body in God's specified order for us. One of the great images of what a church is like is Paul's picture of the church as the body of Christ. If Jesus is the head giving direction and orders, the church, every living believer, is part of the body And just as you have a head and a body and everything coordinates together for movement and direction, so 
is the life that flows through a local church of believers for Jesus Christ. As we find our place, our gifts, our connection, whatever you want to call it, and, and the Lord is able to accomplish something mighty on the earth. And so the church, our church, any good Bible teaching church is a powerful spiritual force against spiritual strongholds, both in your life and in the world. No wonder, therefore, that the church is always under attack from both without and within. The church is portrayed as failing in its mission. It's portrayed as insufficient in what we call these postmodern times. It's nothing new. Every generation has an attack on the church. Uh, and and uh, I don't like it, frankly. Jesus loves his church. He portrays his church as a bride and he the bridegroom. Uh, I don't think anybody likes it if uh, you introduce your uh, fiancé and they say, man, she's ugly. Wow, you know, that's an awful fiancé. You're going to marry her? You know, and so, I mean, it's, it's nobody likes that. Those are fighting words. But a lot of times, I mean, we pick up books. I could find a half a dozen books probably right now in any local Christian bookstore that start off by criticizing the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church is failing, this is happening and that's happening, so we need to recapture this and redo that. And in reality, uh, it, it, it's just easy to criticize. And usually I've found that when people are critical of the church, it's more of a personal issue than a corporate issue. And here's why I believe that, because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, does that mean that we can't fail, that every church is meeting its mission? No, uh, but we ought to have a sense that Jesus loves the church. And we should be very careful about criticizing that which Jesus Christ loves. And, and we should be more of a help than a hindrance. The Israelites had one offensive weapon. It was their sword. So are we portrayed in the Bible as having the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It, too, is constantly attacked as failing, as being insufficient in these more technical, difficult, complicated times. Uh, it's almost as if we, you know, it, the Bible was okay for David and Paul and Peter and those guys. But now, I mean, you know, we, come on. How could the Bible be sufficient in our modern age? Uh, and, and, and it's something that catches on. We, we like to think of ourselves as superior to uh, generations that have come before. Uh, I think we're probably superior in technology, uh, but we are definitely not superior in morality, for one thing, and, and in many other areas as well. We still can't figure out how some of the ancients did some of the things they did so much so that we say, hey, aliens did it. We don't know how they could have done that with their technology, so George Jetson came down and did it, you know? Wow, you're an idiot. But uh, anyway, you know, that's so, so we need, you know, the Bible is sufficient for all issues of life and godliness. And again, we need to be careful about that as people want to attack the Bible and bring in this other information to aid the Bible in its mission. God promised that his word would not go, uh, would, that it would go forth and it would not return void, but it would accomplish its eternal purposes. The success of your spiritual warfare begins with your commitment to a local congregation of believers that the Lord 
uh, that has the Lord in its midst and holds the word of God as its only final authority. Believers are defeated who are not finding their specific gifts and placement in a church. Churches fail when they move away from the simple formula of worship and the word. We have weapons sufficiency against any enemy stronghold within or without. It is a tactic of our enemies to get us to doubt the sufficiency of Christ and of his word and of his church. Don't do it. Verses 10 through 19, strongholds fall when you demonstrate weapons proficiency. The six days of marching and the seventh day of marching seven times was a demonstration of weapons proficiency. When the walls finally fell, the Israelites would look back upon the spiritual weapons God had equipped them with. They were and are very unusual weapons, starting with the first in verse 10. Now, Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. The first spiritual weapon was they needed to learn how to control their tongues. Wow. There's no way I would start there in any list of spiritual warfare. I've read some books on spiritual warfare. There are some good ones. Most of them are not. And they all, they have all kinds of crazy techniques that you need to apply in order to do spiritual warfare. There's all kinds of different prayer techniques. There's different types of fastings. There's different postures in which you hold your hands a certain way to, to attack certain enemies and, and to heal certain people. And uh, you'll see sometimes this, you know, and, and people who have gone through these healing seminars and somebody will say, man, I've got some back pain and they'll, they'll break into the back position, you know, and stuff. And it sounds funny, but it's really kind of tragic because they're taught that power flows through your body in a certain way. And, and, and you wouldn't want, I mean, if you're like this, you're going to heal a headache and, you know, so you want to go a little bit sideways and get the back and stuff, you know. And, and so, and there's all these like crazy things that you have to do in order to take on the devil and to do this spiritual warfare. And not a one of them ever says, hey, before we get started, learn to tame your tongue as a Christian. But it turns out to be of incredible importance in the Bible. The New Testament book of James contains a long section on the taming of the tongue. James indicates that the truly spiritual person and thus the one walking in victory, the one able to pull down strongholds, is the one who has gained control over his or her speech. Do your words hurt or do they help? Do they encourage or do they discourage? Do they speak well of others or do they cast suspicion on others? No one is spiritual who does not tame their tongue. Scripture lists several types of tongues. There is the flattering tongue, the backbiting tongue, the whispering tongue, the deceitful tongue, the slanderous tongue, the lying tongue, a contentious tongue, a tail-bearing tongue, a murmuring tongue, and a filthy tongue. I envisioned myself in a, like a meat market looking at all these different tongues, you know. Stuff. Oh, you know. Hey, some of you eat tongue. Don't act like you don't. Uh, but anyway, you know, it says, oh, I, I'll take that tail-bearing tongue right there, you know. And so, and so think about it. I mean, it's a gross image. And so, so the next time somebody comes to you bearing a tail, uh, think about eating that raw tongue. And, and it's just an ugly thing. And so 
Instead, Ephesians 4.29 exhorts us, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for a necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearer. So how many corrupt words can proceed out of your mouth at any one time in any one day? None. Oh man, I'm in so much trouble already. And so are you. And then Peter says, if anyone speaks, 1 Peter 4.11, let him speak as the oracles of God. There's a sense in which every time I open up my mouth, I'm supposed to say, oh, I'm speaking as if God were speaking through me. I'm to say something that would be similar to what God would say to this person if he were here. Instead of what would Jesus do, it's like, what would Jesus say? What would he say to this person? It doesn't preclude exhortation and correction, but it certainly knocks out a lot of the things that some people say, you know, there's a lot of I, I just want to be honest with you. There are a lot of people in Christendom that are thought to be spiritual for one reason or another, whether they're pastors, whether they're missionaries, whether they're just people, you know, whoever. No one is spiritual from a biblical point of view if they are not taming their tongue. I'm not saying any of us can do it perfectly. But people who are given to gossip and slander and backbiting and tail-bearing and tearing down people and all of this kind of weird stuff, they are just not spiritual. They're immature. And, uh, you know, that's what the Bible says. And so let's get control of our tongue. You want to, you're having trouble with strongholds, you can't tear things down, you don't need any hand techniques. You don't need to do spiritual mapping. You don't have to figure out, what happened at your house 20 years ago that is a demonic stronghold? You don't have to do any of those things. The things that you have to do are simple that all of us can do, but they start with self-control and the taming of the tongue. Now, in verses 11 through 14, the Israelites follow God's instruction for six days. The group doing the marching, we believe to be a representative group, not the entire nation of two million people. It's estimated their daily circuit would take about 35 minutes. I, I don't know. I was looking for a, a nine-acre parcel that I could walk around this week, and, and I got busy, and so I wasn't able to do it. So if any of you know a nine- or ten-acre housing tract or something, that's about the size of Jericho. It wasn't a huge city. Uh, it was an important city because it was. It, you had to get by Jericho to get to the rest of the promised land and be successful militarily, uh, but it, it didn't take that long, really, to march around it. I'd have you note the following. Number one, their marching has no visible effect against the walls or the inhabitants. Number two, each day for six consecutive days, they do exactly the same thing. And number three, most of their days are spent back in their own exposed camp, seemingly doing nothing that will help defeat Jericho. We might say that God was teaching them patience, and we know that patience is a spiritual weapon that we must become more and more proficient with. One reason our patience is so important in warfare is that God is long-suffering. You and I serve a long-suffering God, and therefore we must learn to be patient while God's long-suffering waits. That's a great phrase. It's in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It's in one of the Peters. And, uh, but it's, Peter's talking about God's judgment. He says, God's long suffering, his suffering long with the human race waits. We don't like that waiting. We want God to get on with his program, but we need to learn to be patient. And one reason our patience is so important in the warfare 
because of God's long-suffering is because God wants other people to be saved. Every day for six days, he waited to give the inhabitants of Jericho another opportunity to repent and be saved. And you say, well, wait a minute. They were supposed to wipe out everybody in the land. There's no room for repentance and salvation. Rahab proves it wrong. Of course, there's always room for repentance. Later in Joshua, we'll see the Gibeonites come and God allows them to be a part of his kingdom. Jonah and Nineveh is the only thing you really need to know about this. God said, go and tell them I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah did after a fishing expedition. And uh, then the Lord saved them when they turned to him. God doesn't repent he changes his mind in the sense that he acts according to his nature. God says, I'm going to judge you. You're, I'm at the end of my rope with you. My long suffering has ended. I'm going to kill you, you know, 40 days from now, seven days from now, whatever it is. But if you'll repent, he'll receive you and he'll save you. And so a lot of times we are in a situation where God's long suffering waits and we look at the person that is just given us such a hard time or whatever the situation. And we think, Lord, I just can't take it anymore. And God says, my long suffering is waiting for this person. I want to give this person, that person, these people, every opportunity to repent and be saved because the consequences are heinous. The consequences are terrible. When that long suffering ends, they'll be lost. They'll perish for all eternity. And so you and I need to develop a patience. And many times God has designed situations for us so that we will learn patience. What brings patience according to the scripture? Tribulation brings patience. Trials and, and testings bring patience. Never ask anybody to pray for you for patience. There's a story that pastors tell that probably never really happened, you know, about the guy who says, hey, will you pray for me for patience? And the pastor says, Lord, I pray that you would bring trials and tribulations into the life of this brother. And the guy says, hey, wait a minute, I didn't ask for that. He goes, yes, you do, because in Romans it says tribulation works patience. And so you don't need to pray for it. They're coming anyway, you know. But uh, it's not something you need to really have on your list. But patience is what we need, and it's a very important quality in the bigger spiritual warfare where God is using us, putting us here, moving us there, you know, in his strategies overall so that more people will get saved. Verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. Finally, a change in their routine, but it was only to do the same thing they'd already done even more than before. I note here that they were diligent to accomplish what Joshua had commanded them. Once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, they just kept doing it. Often our work for the Lord seems to be more of the same day in and day out. It can become monotonous. It can become repetitious. And when that happens, it seems meaningless. And when that happens, we tend to lose interest and put in less effort. I fight this. You fight this. When you kind of, you know, we talk about getting in a rut or getting in a groove, depending on whether you think you're doing well or not. Uh, but it, it just you're on autopilot. We have all kinds of cliches to talk about this. You know, maybe when we're first asked to do a ministry, let's say, uh, since we're all here, I can use the church as an example. You're first asked to do a ministry. You're you're not just on time. You're early. 
and you're ready to go. You know, you're gung-ho. Uh, you fasted the day before and, and you've prayed about it and you've you ordered books on, you know, how to pass out bulletins. You know, the bulletin passer outer, you know, by by Spurgeon or whatever and stuff, you know, and you're you're doing searches on the Internet for bulletins and stuff. I mean, you're just you're so into it, you know, whatever it is. And then over time, some of us, if we're honest, uh, I can make it. I think I can get there on time. Only those five people get there early and I can I can hit them later, you know, and so and and so, you know, we just let down sometimes. And we shouldn't. We need to be diligent. Jesus, 30 years on the earth, God in human flesh, before he did anything really significant in terms of ministry. Three and a half years of ministry after those 30 years. Action-packed, of course. But for 30 years, we believe he worked as a carpenter. And, and he didn't work as you know some kind of Finnish carpenter doing custom homes in Nazareth. You know, it wasn't one of these, you know, he didn't, he didn't draw out these amazing designs for things that people had never seen before. He made common implements, common articles for poor people. He probably had a certain design, certain table design that he punched out day after day after day after day after day, decade after decade for 30 years. But you and I know that every one of those tables, including the very last one that he was working on, was a masterpiece. Not just because his hands touched it, but because he paid attention to detail. And we have that sense of Jesus. Can we do any less than our Lord? Of course not. So be diligent. It's a mighty weapon to the pulling down of strongholds. You can't get ahead of yourself God has to teach you patience and diligence. Then in the remaining verses, there is a final weapon. The seventh time it happened, verse 16, when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed. When you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. We're going to talk more about Rahab next time, Lord willing. For now, I want you to notice the emphasis on abstaining from the spoil. Joshua was a real or Jericho, excuse me, was a real city that the Israelites conquered in Canaan. But it also serves as an illustration of what the Bible might call the world. Like Jericho, the world and everything in it are doomed for destruction. Thus, the Apostle John warns us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, he who does the will of God, abides forever. This is what we call the biblical doctrine of separation. We are to be in the world to affect it, not of the world and affected by it. Instead of being drawn by the things of the world, we are to devote the worldly resources we have to the Lord's use. Separation is an attitude of your heart that enables you to analyze your every involvement with the world in order to glorify God. 
It doesn't mean you can't enjoy things. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. In fact, only the person who has the world in a proper perspective can really enjoy the things of the world. You can say, hey, this, let's, you know, this could be fun, this is exciting, this is neat, but in perspective, it's all going to burn, it's all going to be gone, and I have something greater. You don't get all drawn into it. You, you don't spend your whole time and life and resource on this one thing. It, you have a light touch with the world, and there's a freedom uh, to that. Separation. You are facing a stronghold or multiple strongholds. Maybe it's something that you've struggled against all of your life. Maybe it's a relatively new obstacle. You cannot overcome it unless you adopt God's strategy for victory in your march forward as a Christian. Think of those Israelites. Every day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day, exposed to the enemy, what they were doing seemingly having no effect. All they were doing was marching as a congregation with God in their midst. God was teaching them how inadequate they were, how helpless they were to overcome the enemy. And then he would show them in a moment how that he would destroy their enemy, giving them confidence and courage to take on any enemy that might come. We need to be convinced of our own weakness, of our own insufficiency, that there is nothing really in me that I can offer to God that... Uh, you know, that he can take and say, oh, wow, that's fantastic. I wish I'd had that, you know, 20 years ago. The Lord doesn't need that. He wants to show us his glory. All we need to do is have him in the midst of us, in the midst of our life, in the midst of our heart, and he'll win the victory for us. And so these are the things that we can have, a controlled tongue, patience, diligence, and separation from the world. It is a weapon set we can become proficient with. Added to the sufficiency of worship and the word, no stronghold can stand against us and no weapon formed against us can prosper. One final thought. These people marched for seven days. And that means if you're thinking they must have marched on a Sabbath day, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Whether the Sabbath fell on the last day when they marched seven times, we're not sure. But somewhere in the seven-day marching, they marched on a Sabbath, which thing was unlawful for the Jews to do, unlawful to work on the Sabbath day, unless this wasn't work. Unless God said, no, this, this spiritual warfare, this is not work. This is rest. Very interesting. Because I think we like to portray spiritual warfare as, as some kind of really serious work. Only for the, you know, for the few, the proud, you know, the, the missionaries, uh, you know, that, the ministers. I mean, while the you know, spiritual warfare, I mean, look at that and stuff. And God says, no, you guys just march and march and march. What about the Sabbath? What about the Sabbath? This is rest. You rest in the victory. The beginning of this chapter, the Lord says, I've given them to you. It hasn't happened yet, but I've given you the city and all the warriors. You'd have really nothing much to do. This is a mop-up campaign. All of our Christian life is a mop-up. We're the ones that let it get out of control. We're the ones that get overwhelmed. We're the ones that, that you know, we almost build these cities. We build some Jerichos. God says, no, this is just rest in me. Worship me. Have me in your midst. Be a part of a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing congregation. Find your place in it. 
Minister there. Be patient. Be diligent in all of those things in the church and in the world. Stay separate. Enjoy the world. Show a positive joy in Christ. Enjoy the world, but don't be affected by it. And your strongholds will fall. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things. The simplicity of them overwhelms us. We want there to be something more difficult to do. In so many ways, we're like Naaman uh, in the Old Testament, Lord, who was expecting the prophet to give him a difficult task to heal his leprosy. And when the prophet told him to just dip in the Jordan River several times, he was upset and angry. But when he did it, he was healed. I pray, Lord, that we would do these simple things and see ourselves healed from the things that we struggle against. That we would see strongholds fall, that walls would fall all around us. We would go in with the sword of the Spirit and take that stronghold once and for all. Taking none of the spoil, but dedicating it as unto you as we look for you to come and receive us home. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. The guys are here to pray with you and pray for you. You should really avail yourself of that uh, and uh, come down and pray about something or someone. Hope you'll hang around the campus in the cafe or at the bookstore. Uh, As always, you really need to be finding people you've never seen before, introducing yourself to them and uh, giving them an encouragement today. Uh, You may not need encouragement, but someone does. Uh, And if you do, you know, you can't wait around for somebody to pick you out uh, because you have the sourest face or anything like that. Just you will find encouragement as you go up to somebody else. And so get to know somebody or at least introduce yourself. May God bless you and keep you as the walls of your life fall down. Amen.